This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very interesting episode as we are dis- discussing circadian rhythms and novel applications of intradaily stability and intradaily variability. And we have an amazing guest for this episode. She has master's degree in software engineering from Harvard University and PhD in astrophysics from University College London. Interestingly, she has been developing software algorithms from space telescopes to life and health patterns of sensor data, including characterization of activity and sleep behaviors. Currently, she's working as a senior researcher at Oregon Health and Science University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Christina Reynolds. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so very nice to have. And we need to start from your background. How how did you go from software engineering to astrophysics and, and then to circadian rhythms? Well, I originally uh, did a bachelor's degree in astrophysics and math, and I wanted to be an astronomer. And during my bachelor's degree, I really fell in love with telescopes. I spent a lot of time in the observatory. I just loved telescopes. And I knew that I wanted to work on a very specific project for my PhD. I wanted to work on the European Extremely Large Telescope Project, which is going to be the largest telescope in the world. It'll be the larger than every existing telescope combined. Uh, but I knew that a lot of people wanted to work on that project. So I thought, I well, I'm going to make myself different. So before applying for the PhD, I did a master's degree in software engineering because I knew that that was a skill that they would need that a lot of astronomers might not have. So I did my master's degree in software engineering. And for my master's thesis, I wrote software uh, focused on designing primary mirrors for large telescopes. So I was very focused. And I was accepted into the PhD program at UCL, which I specifically chose because UCL was building the prototype mirror segments for the EELT telescope. And the my experience at UCL was amazing. I had the opportunity to write software to drive robots that were used to fabricate the main mirrors of the telescope. So the main telescope is broken up into 798 segments in order to create uh, a mirror that's 39 meters across. And in order to do that, we couldn't use traditional optical methods. So uh, the lab at UCL had invented this method of creating mirrors using robotic grinders and polishers. And that's where I joined the team as I wrote MATLAB software to control these robots to create ultra precision surfaces for the telescope mirrors. So that was my my PhD project and how I applied software engineering to astrophysics. Yeah, very, very interesting. So from the very beginning, you knew that you want to work with telescopes. Uh, 
what 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 is fascinating in telescopes why why is it so so interesting they are so beautiful if you ever get the chance to just spend the night with a really large telescope just the way they move to track the sky or the way they move to go from object to object in the sky i just found fascinating they're so graceful um but yet they're these objects of just immense precision uh, just the way they combined beautiful optics with cutting edge electronics to produce this data. So I was lucky enough as an undergraduate to get the opportunity to visit large professional observatories during my undergraduate studies. And I attended Williams College in Massachusetts, which had a very nice observatory on campus. So I was able to, as an undergrad, spend hundreds of hours with telescopes. And I just completely fell in love with them. Um, just as an object of beauty and also because of what they could do. Yeah, no, no, fascinating. And then now you have moved to more to life and health. How how did you move from telescopes to, to your current role and current software things that you are doing? So my interest in neuroscience and neurology was born with my son. My son was born with a brain injury and in working with arranging his health care and interacting with his doctors, I started just taking classes online about neuroscience and the brain and neurology to understand what it was he was going through. And he's 17 now and he's amazing. He copes with it so well. You would never know that he has this injury because he compensates for it so well. Um, but then at one point, I moved to Portland, Oregon and needed to make a career shift. Uh, I applied to Oregon Health and Science University. They had an opening for a computer programmer and I ended up not being the right fit for the opening they had, but I had talked about the work I had done in astrophysics and also that I'd taken all these classes online in neuroscience and neurology. And they said, you know, we think your background is interesting. How would you like to join us as a postdoc, a postdoctoral fellow in neurology? And I jumped at the chance. So I was able to join OHSU in Portland in the neurology department at the Alzheimer's Center under Dr. Jeffrey Kay. And there I got the chance to learn about interesting new ways to study people. So he was interested in people as they age, both healthy aging and people as who may have developed dementias. So we wanted to learn as not enough about as much about their life patterns as that we possibly could. And my background in software engineering turned out to be very useful in creating MATLAB software to study their data sets. And I've also found that my viewpoint as a physicist, as an astronomer, as someone who works with these large astronomical data sets has been really useful because a lot of times I'll have a different perspective on the data we're working with compared to the neuroscience and neurologists because I have a different background. Hmm, very interesting. So, so more about the different perspective. Do you see it from the moon or <laughs> like, how is it different? Like they, they have been studying the brain from inside in a way you have been looking different kind of data sets do you, do you have can you describe any any idea how is it different that you see this might be a challenging question a lot i will pick up on patterns 
in, in a different way, I do a lot of work with EEG data and EMG data to look for unusual movements and muscle. Uh, one of the things my group is studying is REM behavior disorder, uh, which is a disorder where your, your brain doesn't do what it should do during the REM cycle of sleep. Normally during REM sleep, uh, you're your body is paralyzed. You're not moving. You're not acting out your dreams. REM behavior disorder is, it occurs in veterans uh, disproportionately. And it can be a dangerous and frightening disorder because people will act out their dreams and they will especially act out violent or frightening dreams. And that is dangerous for the person. It's dangerous for their, their family, for their bed partners. It's also of strong interest because people who have REM behavior disorder have a much higher chance of developing Parkinson's disease later in life. There's a connection there we don't completely understand. So if we can understand more about REM behavior disorder, we can understand more about Parkinson's disease. So coming back to my background as an astronomer and a physicist, uh, we will look at EMG data and EEG data from people with REM behavior disorder. The EEG data, we're looking at the activity in their brain. What we're looking for is when they enter REM sleep. The EMG data is looking at muscle tone in the body during sleep. During those REM sleep cycles, your body should be paralyzed. You shouldn't be seeing muscle tone activity. But in people with REM behavior disorder, the muscle is active. So I look at data, especially um, in our lab at the Portland VA hospital system under uh, Dr. Miranda Lim, we are unusual in that we have both simultaneously a human side of our studies and an animal branch of the lab. So we can, we can study disorders simultaneously, both in people clinically and in re as research studies and using these animal models. So, um, my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Tinsley, and I are looking especially at animal models of REM behavior disorder to try and understand what's going on. So I will look at this data, again, coming back to me as an astronomer and a physicist. So when I studied at University College London, looking at very large mirrors, one thing that's important is the shape of the mirror. So there are two, at, when we're talking about an ultra precision optic, there are two characteristics of the optic that we're really concerned with. So the first is the form of the mirror. And in order to bring light to a focus using mirrors, you have to have a curved mirror. We're aiming for a parabolic mirror. So you've got to get that curvature right in order to produce an image in the best possible focus. So we call that the form. And you're never going to get, and there is no such thing as perfection in engineering. So you'll measure the form of your mirror. And this was a difficult challenge in this particular project because we were taking this 39 meter across parabola and breaking it into 798 pieces. So each of those pieces was a segment of the parabola. So you had to make sure that your curvature was exactly right. So that's, that's your form error. The other thing that we were concerned about is what we call surface texture. 
So it's possible that you could have an optic that is in specification for its form error. You've got the correct curvature in it, but you could have bad surface texture. And surface texture is something like ripples in the surface. Um, an extreme example of undesirable surface texture would be something like a CD or a DVD. It's got all those grooves in it. And if you play with a CD or a DVD, you get that, that rainbow effect. And that's because you're diffracting the light. It's, it's interfering with itself and creating a rainbow. We really don't want that on the surface of a telescope. And this was an issue for us because we were using robots to create the, this perfect so form. And um, those robots would raster back and forth. They'd pass back and forth across the surface. And we, were, we would actually result in this regular surface texture that would create a diffraction pattern on the surface of the mirror. So one of the challenges that I did as um, a mathematician, so I do, so I did double major in astrophysics and math as an undergraduate, and I got to apply my math background, is taking the the um, toolpath of our robots and randomizing it to completely randomize the surface, get rid of any periodic surface texture, and get rid of that tendency for light to interfere with itself. The way that we would test this is that we, we would have this tiny probe, very sensitive probe that would travel across the surface of the mirror and you could measure the surface texture. So I got used to looking at this data. I would take the Fourier transform of the surface and look for any periodic structures. So my brain is kind of trained to look for that sort of thing. What kind of texture do we have? So coming back to the, the muscle tone data, the EMG data, I, I'm used to looking at that data, that muscle twitches. I'm not really thinking of it the way a physician or a neurologist might think of it as, you know, here's a physiological action. I'm seeing the texture and it's, it's second nature to me to write the software to do, to do this analysis, to find these periodic movements. And I found that to be very helpful looking at this data to, to just look at the complexity of it to try and figure out our, when are we having these weird spikes? So that's one thing that I've, I've found useful from my background. Um, another aspect of my background that's been useful is as an astronomer, you do a lot of image processing. And that was something I did a lot of observational work as an undergraduate. So I learned a lot about scientific image processing, and that is helpful in our work. We work with MRI data. We also, we have a machine called a functional ultrasound that takes ultrasound images. We use it with rodents. So there, it's in real time, we can have the rodents exposed to different situations. We can take these live ultrasounds of their brain and see how, where the brain is metabolizing at different rates, which tells us where is the brain active. So we can use that to look at social behaviors. We can also watch as these rodents go through their sleep cycles. And that image processing background has helped in working with the data from our functional ultrasound facility. Lot, lot of interesting things. I'm, I'm thinking where, where, where should I start? Uh, do, do you see some similarities? You said the shape of the mirror and then the EEG electrodes around the head, which is uh, spherical. Do you, do you see some similarities there? How, how to analyze EEG? EEG is 
challenging to understand what does it really represent. So, yeah. It is it is very challenging and one of our projects in our group we're we're a very active and varied group we have a lot of interests and one of our interests is looking at the relationship between sleep and Alzheimer's disease and we have one uh, study that we're carrying out in collaboration with the medical school at Washington University in St. Louis Missouri and we're we're looking at we have um, a full night of polysomnography data from several research volunteers who have been diagnosed with active Alzheimer's disease. So this gives us this window into seeing what the brain is doing during sleep when also dealing with the challenge of having an active Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. And we're looking at specific uh, oscillations, frequencies in the brain, but we're looking at it at different leads to try and see, is there coherence in these slow oscillations? And it's thought that the slow oscillations in the EEG represent the brain sort of clearing itself out during the phase of deep sleep, that N3 sleep. Uh, so we are doing analysis there to try and see when does that occur simultaneously. And like you said, EEG data is difficult. EEG, it's fantastic in that it's non-invasive. It's an easy way to study the brain, but you know, it's a, it's a method where you're studying the brain. You're going, you know, through the scalp, through the hair, through the skull. You have all these layers of tissue to reach the brain tissue. And you're not looking at the firings of individual neurons you're picking up groups of hundreds or thousands of neurons all firing about the same time. So again, we like, like you said, what, what does that mean? So it is, it's so when, with EEG, you have to keep in mind that you're looking at it's, it's, you're not looking at individual neurons. You're looking at populations of neurons who are working together. So it, it, it is difficult data to work with, but it's very, very interesting. So you said that you are looking for coherence, you're looking for slow oscillations and clearing of the brain. Is it is it that there's neural activity which is clearing the brain from the biochemical waste products? I'm, I'm not an expert. What what's what's happening there? Can you can you explain us a little bit? It's a theory that it's the um that it's these are new discoveries, and I too am, am not an expert here, but there is um a function of the brain, we think it's called the glymphatic system. And it's believed that during this deep stage of sleep, the N3 sleep, the brain sort of oscillates at this slow frequency together in, in coherence. And that helps clear out these, these proteins, like these tau proteins that we know are, are amyloid beta that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And we, we know of this association because people have done post-mortem examinations of the brains of people who passed away from Alzheimer's disease and were generous enough to donate their brains for research. And we see that these proteins build up in people with Alzheimer's disease. So we know that there's an association. And it's thought that this process clears out the brain. And that's that's why in a healthy brain, those proteins don't continue to accumulate day after day after day. Um, so the thought is, is that well, what's going what's going wrong? 
in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. Why is why are these proteins accumulating? And uh, so we're, we're, we're trying to study during that particular deep phase of sleep, what's happening in this brain with Alzheimer's disease. Are we seeing this, this slow wave oscillation? And, and, and is it coherent? Is it happening at the same time in different areas of the brain? Yeah, no, very interesting. And do you see any similarities other than what we discussed already with the astrophysics and and the EEG analysis, how how do you usually analyze the data? Do you do you see some different patterns than than others? Do you approach analyzing the EEG somehow differently? So with the EEG, when when mathematically when you first start to tackle it, it's it's Fourier analysis. And Fourier analysis is everywhere across the sciences. So you're, you can use it to pick out particular frequencies. And in this way, it's similar to looking at music. I also have a strong interest in music. I'm a cello student um, and I love going to the symphony. And so I, I think a lot about, about music and I love pulling music into MATLAB and just playing with it. And so when you first start doing the, the analysis, it's a lot like that. It's using Fourier analysis to break out different frequencies. Um, but w- one thing that's different about EEG and the brain and working with neurons, it's easy to think, it's easy to look at the EEG data. If you look at it visually, it looks like music. It looks like that type of signal, like a vibration. It's easy. So physicists, we all start physics thinking about a vibration on a string. So it's easy to look at the EG and think this is a complex vibration on a string, and it is not. So the thing with a neuron is a neuron is governed by an action potential. So basically, you know, it's a chemical reaction that builds up enough that the neuron fires off an action potential. So you can think of a neuron as being an on-off switch. It's a blinking light. It's capable of sending out exactly one signal, that action potential. So it is not a vibration on a string. So what you're looking at when you're looking at an EEG is what a neuron can do when it's talking is, okay, it can send out It is a beeper capable of producing one note, but the way that it communicates different messages is the frequency of that beep. So a quiet neuron might be going beep, 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 while an excited neuron is beep, 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 beep. So what that looks like when you're looking at the EEG is you're seeing an entire population of neurons. And when you see higher amplitudes in the EEG, it's not like a vibration on the st- a string where you're seeing a higher vibrational mode in the string. What you're seeing is more neurons going beep, 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 and they can produce exactly one beep. And I try and keep that visual image in my head when I'm processing this data that I'm, that it's not mu- it's not like music where you've got different notes. You've got one note and what you're looking at is the frequency of neurons blinking. It's like a crazy Christmas tree. Um, so that's, that's sort of from a physics standpoint, like that's, that's how I image the date, you know, imagine the date in my head when I'm working with it. And then, so then the question becomes, what can we learn from this? And um, when we're specifically looking at the slow oscillations, you're seeing entire populations of neurons in the EEG that are having action potentials at the same 
very slow, very relaxed rate. They're doing it together. What does that mean? And that's what we're trying to understand. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.